I like to think that I've still got a seller in me. And so when it comes time to trying to drive adoption of a particular process, a new technology, I look at it like a sales pitch. My stakeholders are my customers and or my prospects, and I have to sell them on this new way of doing something. And I have to instill confidence in them and I have to build trust with them. Welcome to the OpStars podcast, where we talk to revenue operations pros at the top of their game so that we can collectively support each other through the sharing of ideas, learning best practices, and discovering innovative new strategies. I'm your host, Don Opfos. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the OpStars podcast. I have someone today I'm really honored to join us. Keith Jones is currently doing GTM operations at OpenAI. However, Keith and I have known each other for quite a while. I was introduced to him while I was at SalesLoft and a deputy was a SalesLoft customer. So basically every time I got to go down to Atlanta, I got to hang out with Keith and help them out with their implementation of SalesLoft way back when. And now he's this legendary ops person that is leading the charge at a very amazing company, OpenAI. But now the funny thing is Keith and I share something in common that I don't really talk about that much. You don't, I don't think you talk about it that much, but neither of us graduated college. And it's always interesting. People are always like, oh my God, how did you end up in RevOps from not even having a degree? And I think a lot of times on the podcast, we've talked to folks that their degree was in something that was completely not RevOps. It's just, it's just like you and I, where it's like, well, we didn't even finish school. Like I just started working in tech because I had to go get a job, <laughs> you know? And I think uh, you kind of had a similar journey so can you walk me through what your journey was like? Because you actually went right into sales operations without a degree, all the way to what you're doing today at OpenAI. So what were the pivotal moments or influences that shaped that career path for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, it's something that I'm really happy that we both share in common. So let me start by saying that it really came down to community. And so I think generally not taking any connection that you have with another human for granted is really the crux of this, if you will. But the story goes like this. I was working part-time near full-time in a retail organization. And it was there that I was starting to develop a little bit of a hunger for something more. I knew I didn't want to work retail forever, but I was finding myself just naturally intrigued by like the general manager store going through the daily P&L and talking about our budgets and our sales numbers. And I was like, huh, this actually makes a lot of sense. It's just a, a kind of arrived naturally in my brain. And so I was like playing around in like Excel and just figuring some things out. No idea where any of this would take me. And it just so happened that a friend of mine knew that I was not happy in the role that I was in. That I like to say at the time I was kind of finding myself, right? Figuring out what I was going to do because I was on a very different path than what I had considered at the ripe age of, you know, 17, 18, I thought I would do for the rest of my <laughs> life. What did you envision yourself doing when you were that young? We're going to need like a whole <laughs> other episode to get into all the details here. But my original path was going to see me working in a ministry position for the church that I sort of went to as a teenager. So when I was growing up, I realized that that wasn't something I wanted to do professionally anymore for a number of reasons that we won't get into here really. But that's what it kind of landed me in the retail environment, though. You know, I was like, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to finish school for that. So I'll go work retail and we'll see what happens, right? But like any 18, 19, 20-year-old, I think I was 20 at the time, 
I was just meandering. I was just going with whatever momentum I had, right? And so a friend of mine recognized that I wasn't super happy where I was and really know where I was going. And he just so happened to be connected to a gentleman who was running what they called business operations at the time at this healthcare company that was busting at the seams. This just happened to coincide real nicely with the signing of the Affordable Care Act in the United States which was this forcing function, right, for a lot of hospitals. There's like a health tech boom back then, really. Yeah, exactly. Because all these hospitals that didn't really have a lot of incentive to digitize and modernize, their operations suddenly did. And so this company was manufacturing a product that hospitals all over the U.S. had suddenly had a huge demand for. And it was a little bit of an arms race between this tiny little company that had maybe at the time 100 people in it a U.S.-based manufacturer, by the way. This is in 2009, for all of us who remember what was happening around that time. And so they were busting the seams, and I got introduced to this gentleman who was running business operations there, which meant a variety of things. It was basically, he was over general sort of like forecasting, profit analysis, pricing. He also ran what was called the sales support team that was kind of like a in-house group supporting the field sales reps for the company. And so... He was generous enough to offer me an interview. I came in and I'll still never to this day, never forget something he told me in the interview process because he started asking me some pretty hard questions about my Excel skills. And I didn't have all the skills that he was looking for to like take over some parts of his job for him. But I said to him, I was like, I don't know how to do that. But what I can promise you is that I will figure it out. I have been a self-learner and self-taught in a number of areas and I won't give up till I, I learn how to do it. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't know that I'm going to hire you just yet, but I need you to answer that question in every interview you ever have from now on. (laughs) He was like, that is exactly the attitude you need to have in your career. And so the interview ended, you know, went well. I didn't know what was going to happen. He called me a few days later. I was actually on the sales, like on the floor at the retail place. And I answered the phone like I shouldn't have, but I didn't care because I was too excited. And he was like, I want you to come work for me. I'm going to pay you $11 an hour. And you are going to be my biz ops associate. And so I joke, like you said, I was into sales operations. I didn't know what it was. All I knew is that I was taking this job and he was having me take over like management of a spreadsheet that had some projections and modeling in it for what our revenues were going to be every month based on what we were able to get out the door and off our dock into these hospitals. I later would go on to run what was called at our time, our special fabrication request process when our sellers would need like custom things priced out and I was in charge of controlling the margin. That's like an early deal desk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%. I actually did deal desk too. It's funny enough. Like I also (laughs) was responsible for authorizing certain discounts that were allowed because at the end of the day, my job was to protect our margins among other things because we were a, a manufacturer. So you can imagine how slim those were, right? But yeah, again, comes down to community, right? If it hadn't been for a friend introducing me to a friend of his, And then that person being so willing to take me under his wing and teach me up and use what I think was a lot of raw potential for what he needed, I don't know where I would have gone. Because it was at that company that I also went into sales for a little bit with them, only to bounce back into operations after transitioning from healthcare to SaaS and going to work for my first startup some four, almost five years later. And even there, I tried to be an account executive and I was terrible at it. (laughs) <laughs> Turns out I'm a, I'm a pretty good in-person field sales rep. I'm a really bad cold caller. And so 
it was at that first SaaS startup CEO pulled me aside one day and he was like, listen, you're not good at calling. You're really not. <laughs> your calls aren't good. Your volumes aren't good. He's like, but every time I get you in front of a customer, you nail it. He's like, you also understand the product at a level that no one else here does. So here's what's happening. He goes, I've hired some new salespeople. They're going to pound the phones. They can smile and dial. You, on the other hand, are the one who can have the right conversations. So they're going to get you meetings and you are going to talk to the marketers that we sell to. We were an early competitor to Zoom Info and other data providers of the like then. And so it was my job to explain to marketers at a more technical level how we were going to enrich their data. And so from there, I started being more of like a sales engineer, kind of solutions consultant, a little bit type role. But then also you were like, by the way, our CRM admin just quit. Do you want to learn how to do Salesforce? <laughs> sure. Why not? So, I mean, see, so you really transitioned between roles in sales and RevOps across a lot of different industries, really. I mean, you started in medical, you got into tech. How do you think that the transitions and the experience that you've had in those roles help you in understanding kind of the broader spectrum of RevOps? So I use it in two ways. One, no matter how much distance I continue to create between myself now and at any given time in the future that I will create between that and when I was a salesperson, I always try to remember the pressures of that role and being on the hook for so many things. And frankly, a lot of things that are some often outside of your control, right? So it grants me a certain level of empathy, particularly with sellers and other kind of customer facing roles that I now support in go-to-market operations and go-to-market systems. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is there are a lot of kind of sales instincts you just don't forget, right? I like to think that I've still got a seller in me. And so when it comes time to trying to drive adoption of a particular process, a new technology, I look at it like a sales pitch. My stakeholders are my customers and or my prospects, and I have to sell them on this new way of doing something. And I have to instill confidence in them and I have to build trust with them. And so... That also helps maintain the empathy because I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm doing what they do. I still think their job's harder. I have a lot of advantages working for me being an internal person that they don't have trying to convince people on the outside to do business with us. But I think it's important to recognize that we are more similar than we are different between customer facing revenue influencing roles and actual operations. Yeah, that's very true. We talked about Salesforce certification, and I know that you didn't get certified until pretty far into your career, and you told me that it was really because they were giving you a bonus to get certified. So how important do you think it is to get formal Salesforce certifications or technology platform certifications in the field of RevOps? I mean, does that matter? Is it required? Can you get by without it? What benefit does it give you? So I certainly think you can get by without it, but I have to believe that it's probably a lot easier if you do have it. And the reason's this, right? I think there are probably too many organizations that maybe even put a little too much stock in the certification itself, right? Because sometimes it can be that gatekeeper, right? And if we even kind of click back or circle back to the question about a college degree, right? The only times I got rejected on my application alone from tech companies in Atlanta where I was at the time because I didn't have that degree. There are plenty of times where I even had to convince someone at another company when I wanted to hire someone and I wanted to hire them despite them not having the certification. And I was like, I have had the conversations I need to have with this person to assess their knowledge, right? So my advice to the community is go get them if you can, right? If it's not 
too inaccessible, you know, given the costs and time that's required. If you're learning how to do those things, you'll be better off for them. So I think it is better to have them. But I do wish that we didn't use them in such a binary fashion and just assume that because you have them, you know what you're doing or because you don't have them, you don't know what you're doing. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. That's really true. I think a lot of what I think about when I hire is like how passionate is the person that I'm talking to about what my company does, what my product offers. Because sometimes you can have somebody who's very passionate about your product offering, but they don't have the certifications or they don't have a degree. Sometimes it's good just to have that passion in the room, right? There's an energy that that person can bring that there's no certification or degree that's going to give you that. Yeah, it's engagement. If you have someone who's actually engaged and wants to be a part of whatever you're trying to accomplish, that's infinitely more valuable than any industry knowledge or subject matter expertise. Exactly. You and I, we've been in this field of RevOps for a while. You know, how have you seen the role and the expectation of RevOps professionals change, especially when you look at introduction of things like AI and what your company is doing at OpenAI with ChatGPT? So I think the first thing that comes to mind with that is we are not allowed to maintain our own status quo. I think that, especially in SaaS, right, we see a lot of the same things or maybe just slightly different flavors of the same things from organization to organization. And maybe 80% of that works. But I think the thing that is different for revenue operations is we have to be open to new ideas, especially technologies like generative AI, right? I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said publicly or will be said in the future, but it is literally a transformative technology, right? And so... I think this is an opportunity for not just operations. I mean, just about anybody who works professionally with a keyboard and a trackpad, since those are our current ways we interface with technology at large. I think we're changing the game there, right? And so I think in operations in particular, though, even though we might see, again, those slightly different flavors of the same thing from shop to shop, these things are typically very heavily nuanced, right? And that's because we're dealing with humans. And no matter what we want to say, Every person is wonderfully different, diverse, and unique and complex and individual as the next, right? And so when you multiply that by 10, 50, 100, multiple hundreds of sellers, customer success people, you have to be willing to throw your previous understanding to the side. Allow it to inform your new opinion, but don't allow it to be the only thing you go forward with. Exactly. Like the way I look at it is people buy from people. And there's nothing that AI is going to do that is going to replace a person. I think there are things that AI is going to be able to assist you in your role. And I think there will be people that get left behind that don't embrace it and learn how to leverage it. I think it comes down to this, Don. I think the difference is if we let the AI do what it does well or even better than what we can do, That gives us humans the opportunity to do more of what only we can do, right? There's a balance there where it's like, let the mundane stuff that the machines are capable of doing, let them do that and rely on them to a certain extent. And to your point, that's where the split's going to be, right? The team, the organization, down to the individual who's doing that is going to have more bandwidth and more even just thought space to be able to do things that someone next to them is it going to be able to do because they're not relying on AI or machines in the right way? Yeah. I know like 
OpenAI's ChatGPT has really been surprising the world with its capabilities. I mean, I can remember playing around with it like a year ago, and I was having it write poems. I was posting on LinkedIn about my company plus another company as a partner, and it was some holiday theme. And now I'm at the point where it's like, if I have a Salesforce formula that I think is broken, I copy and paste it into ChatGPT and say, fix it, <laughs> and it fixes it, right? It's that easy. And that's just in a year. And we're at ChatGPT4 today. Like, So how do you really envision other AI tools shaping the future of sales and revenue operations? You know, I've seen companies that are tapping into OpenAI's API that are doing some crazy cool things. I have to imagine you've seen a lot too. Let's say in the next year, how do you think AI is going to change what we're doing in sales and RevOps? So... I think there's probably no end to the answers to that question, right? But I'll focus on something that's a little bit more near and dear to my heart, right? So as you know, Don, I'm a systems leader. Like I've been a RevOps guy, I've been a sales ops guy, but systems really is my home. It's where I feel comfortable. It's my domain that I love to be somewhat of an expert in, I hope. Declarative automation shouldn't be the same for much longer, is the tagline. Our days of clicking and let's use any sort of automation in any go-to-market technology, right? Whether it's a sales engagement tool, CRM at its core, conversational intelligence, right? It's a lot of clicking. It's a lot of dragging one element onto the next. I cannot move my mouse as fast as my brain does. That's a proven <laughs> thing. And I probably can vocalize what I want to do way faster than I can click and drag it around, right? And so I think the days of declarative automation are numbered, or at least I think they should be. I think there's a future. And I say that because I have seen vendors in the space who are already doing something like this and getting there very fast, particularly with our API, being able to take spoken language, natural language, and turn it into a workflow. So I think when you consider the amount of time, I don't know about you, but as a systems guy, how much time I have spent building and debugging automations, if you could have AI do that for me, if I could just creatively think about it and have it done, of course, there's always going to be fine tuning. There's always going to be minor adjustments to be made. You're not going to be able to just not use the keyboard and mouse and or, and or trackpad anymore. But if that's all you're doing, if it's just the tweaking that you're doing, you're saving an exponential amount of time. Right. And look, I say this, you know, obviously I will never try to tread on our friends and colleagues in more of the developer heavy world, right? I've said before, I will never try to pretend to be a developer. I am a configurator, not a developer, right? I know how to click on things. I don't know how to code things. And so I've always been a fan of declarative automation for that reason, because it's made me feel kind of like an engineer, even though I would never call myself one. And so thinking about what might be possible and you know, we've seen this already with things like ChatGPT being able to generate code and write code itself. It's not perfect and it may not be for the foreseeable future, but if it speeds up the process of getting to a finished product, if it can write some sort of automation for me in whatever system I'm in, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, for sure. So for me, I've been using ChatGPT. I have a subscription, but in talking to a lot of other companies that are out there and folks that are have these AI offerings, you know, they're tapping into the OpenAI API. So for me, it looks like you really have two different flows of business. You have your consumer, which is me, 
you know, buying that subscription for ChatGPT for so that I could do cool things and maybe have a little bit of better access to the server. And then you have the API side where you're offering probably usage base on API for developers and other companies to create things using ChatGPT. But for me, having you there as a GTM ops person, you're kind of building things in flight. So with the companies you've been at before, what are some of the challenges and strategies of having to really build these things while you're trying to print money and have everything work? What have you seen there so far? Yeah, I think there's two angles to this. I think the first is understanding, and this is you know going to be maybe somewhat disappointingly generic here, but the challenges that we might see on a daily basis from a variety of, let's just call them service lines, right? are not unique to any other business in the world that also has multiple service lines. What it means is that your audience is probably different, their needs are probably different, and there's going to be different nuances there. Volume. I would say volume will be different. Yeah, volume is going to be very different, right? And the way by which the speed of business occurs in each could be different, right? So what I'll say to that is that means that as we take all these different service lines, whoever you are, whether it's us, or any other business, and it comes down to a centralized function, which maybe we like to think it ought to be, right? And whether it's RevOps, GoToMarketOps, however we want to classify it, we have to be prepared to accept that nuance. And even though one thing works for one line, doesn't mean it'll work perfectly for the other line. Our job is to figure out where the compromise and where the overlap and common ground is, but where we also need to specialize. So there's a judgment call that has to be made. The other angle to this is kind of comes down to a combination of prioritization, but also understanding where are the quick wins and which of those quick wins are worth it. So I had a conversation with our enablement leader very early on. She's only been a few weeks behind me and she said it so much better. And she's like, I feel like there's this constant tug to have to decide is this something I do right now? Or is this something where I have to push back and say, we can't do it that quickly? And what she said to me, she's like, I feel like I have to make that decision like 15 times a day. And I was like, you're absolutely right. That's the challenge right now. Like I can have a stakeholder or a sales leader ask me for something that I know I can do in 15 minutes. But is it going to be the right long-term decision that I do that thing in 15 minutes? That's the question I have to ask and answer for myself. Like, what's the cascading effect of that right. 15 minutes? <laughs> exactly. Right. Am I going to solve a problem in the immediate time and create more long-term? And it's okay if I do create some problems that would be solved later on, because that short-term win might be worth it. It kind of boils down to the classic adage of, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good or good enough, right? But the question you have to ask, is good enough worth it? Or do you need to wait around for great and or near perfect? I think that's now just figuring out how to make that decision so many times on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think you've also mentioned having the understanding that is what I'm doing repeatable among your peers, right? So how do you approach creating and managing processes that are both effective and efficiently replicable across teams? I think first and foremost, it, comes down to communication, right? So just because one team has expressed a need or we've identified the need for one team 
I think what we have to appreciate typically as operators is that we have a little bit maybe wider perspective, right? Because we're dealing with so many different people. This is one of the things that really benefited me at Gartner. I talked to a lot of clients and a lot of different clients. And so what that meant for me was that when one client asked a question, I wasn't just answering their question with the perspective I had as a subject matter expert in my domain. I was answering it with that and what I had gleaned from talking to all these other clients, right? So apply that to an internal role as an operator, right? Just because your enterprise sales leaders asked you for something doesn't mean that the perspective you've gained from talking to your customer success leader might not apply. Or even different segments of the business. Like what might work for enterprise might not work for commercial. What works for B2B doesn't work for consumer. Yeah, or it might work, right? That's your task as an operator is to use all that insight and determine where you can generalize and where you have to specialize. I think that's really the challenge at play. Yeah. Now, at the beginning, you talked about how getting into RevOps was really, you tapped into your own personal community. And I know that on the podcast, we've talked a lot about how important RevOps communities are. And you're a founding member of Wizard of Ops. So how important do you think that community engagement and thought leadership are in staying at the forefront of RevOps trends and best practices? I mean, it probably couldn't be more important than anything else. Like, I, I think it is the most important thing. So first thing I'll say is that we can't allow ourselves to accept that maybe our ideas are the best ideas. One of the things that harkening back to my time just recently at Gartner that I really appreciated was, you know, every piece of research we published had to be ruthlessly peer-reviewed. And it didn't even matter if the person reviewing it had direct experience. It was because they might have a perspective and done something somewhat similar or something adjacent that might offer a much-needed lens that you hadn't yet looked through. And I can say without a doubt that every piece of research I published at Gartner was better because of that. And everything I've ever rolled out in my career has been better because of what I've been able to run through the community in Wizards of Ops. Being a part of that community has been nothing short of transformative for my career. Through the sheer connections that I've made, through the availability of everyone, to the willingness of that community to create this open and safe environment where you can be like, hey, this might be a dumb question, but is this a good idea? Or how do I do this? Can anyone point me in this direction? And so like, being able to find organically through that community what has worked for others, what hasn't worked for some, and what might work best for you is incredibly powerful. It probably accelerates your own growth in that role. Exactly. It's actually kind of like, okay, so we're going to tie this all the way back because I know we'll run out of time in a little bit. But we're going to tie it all the way back to the potential of generative AI just for fun once. Very clear here, with consent and permission from a select group of friends, I took a small subset of our conversations in Wizards of Oz and I uploaded the chat GPT and I asked it to describe us. And it was so much fun because it literally came back and said, this is a community that isn't afraid to poke fun at each other, but it also will offer insight. They offer each other encouragement, all of these things. And it was a wonderful analysis, but I'll turn that around to a little bit more of a objective analysis, if you will, right? Imagine the power you could harness with an LLM that had access to all the internal conversations that your employees have had, right? Or at least the work-related conversations. 
Obviously, we got to worry about consent and privacy. These are all really important things. But if you can harness the raw, unstructured data that is the exchange of ideas, information, and insight between humans to help fuel other conversations, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, like, yeah, Keith, didn't you say something about this, right? We had an assistant that knew that and could retrieve that information so much more accurately and so much more quickly. And summarize it. Yeah. Summarize it and make it relevant for what you're talking about now. It's super powerful. I think there's a future where things like public channels in a Slack or Teams or Google Chat or Zoom Chat, whatever your collaboration app is, if it's in a public chat, it's public domain for the company. And we want to harness the intelligence that you share and exchange with each other, right? I think there's a really cool potential there. Yeah. So what would be the key competencies that you think that a RevOps professional should develop to be successful with the future landscape of the industry for what you're seeing? So I think first and foremost, a lot of us get forced into being overly general in our roles, and that's okay. But our function tends to touch a few too many things for you to be a complete RevOps, go-to-market ops expert. Even if you're one of the more senior people, like the person I have the privilege of working for at OpenAI, right? One of the things that makes her so effective is she knows what she's really good at, and then she makes up for what she's not good at by hiring really smart people, right? So my advice to the community at large, and especially those that maybe are trying to make it or trying to make the leap into it, is find an area, whether it's analytics or systems or process or territories, some aspect of the function that you know there's a need for and that you have an innate desire or natural talent for, right? And then focus on that because you'll always be able to find something where someone has that particular need and you can carve a path for yourself, right? That doesn't mean one day you can't hop up, climb the proverbial ladder and all that, but like the reality is that our function is just way too wide to be an expert in all of it. It's never going to happen. And anyone who claims that they're an expert in everything our function tends to cover or can cover, I call BS. <laughs> so I say find the area that makes you happy. Find the area that you can't be satiated on, right? And just run at it. And find other people who are doing that as well, too, and talk to them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so file pressure, we'll wrap it up. What advice would you give to individuals that are aspiring to build a career in RevOps, especially if it's somebody that might be starting without a traditional education background or it's coming from a completely different field? Yeah. So my thing is not to be overly generalizing, but I will be for a moment, is that I think one of the core things at the heart of RevOps is process, right? And scalable and repeatable processes of that. So my advice, especially if you're trying to kind of break through into RevOps, is Find something that represents or could be reasonably described as a process that you've created yourself or you've adapted yourself from something else that you know you can teach someone else to do and that they see value in and that they start using as well. If you can identify anything like that, I think particularly about my friends, peers, and colleagues that work in like sales, customer success, technical success. As humans, we love patterns and we love to follow patterns. And so more likely than not, you've done something that's part of your workflow that is more or less unique to how you do it, right? If you can identify a component of your workflow that you know others have seen you do and followed after you, I think that's something to build a launch pad into 
RevOps on and get into the community and to find someone who's willing to give you a shot and say, look at this thing I did. I created a process. That process was adopted. That process had valuable output. And I want to have the chance to do this over and over again. And I think that's a compelling story. No, it's awesome. That's a great way to wrap everything up. I think I'm really excited to see where OpenAI goes with ChatGPT and what things look like in the next few years. I'm super excited for you personally. I was excited for you when you landed at Gartner. I am super excited for you now that you're at OpenAI. And just that kind of opportunity, I think it's once in a lifetime and I think you're going to do amazing things. So really excited to see what happens. And it was great to have you on the Alpsharf podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Don. And uh, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. The Opstars Podcast is brought to you by Lean Data. To find out more about us and our suite of Salesforce native products for marketing, sales, and revenue operations, head to leandata.com and then make sure to search for Opstars in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Opstars and Lean Data, thanks for listening. <laughs>